Welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson. From the title of the podcast, this is how the show starts. I ask my guest who they are. So who are you? My name is Christian Van Vuren. Who I am is another question, or what I am. Uh, Who knows? Perhaps one part of a collective mind um, of which every single human being is one nerve ending. Perhaps I am just, uh, I don't know, a shaved monkey born into a line of shaved monkeys. Uh, I'm still trying to work that out, Will. Okay, Christian, you found the tone of the podcast straight away. You've jumped in the right, the deep end. Literally, that's what I try to explore with this first question. Normally, people tell me what their job is first, and then I try to get to what they really are and what they're really about. But you were like, just dived in head first, ready to go out of the blocks. I love it. So it's just, it's such a profound question. Like, you know, who are you? It's just got so many I don't know, you've caught me on a Sunday, so I don't know if I'm just uh, in a more profound mood. But, um, I mean, that's it is the question, isn't it? I think it's the thing that we're all wondering, and it's what it's that small thing that can leave human beings feeling lonely despite being surrounded by, you know, all of your best friends, or it's the thing that can leave you pondering over beers in the backyard, or it's the thing that can wake you up in the middle of the night and you can't stop thinking about. Okay, I love all this. This is great. So we're away. This is all I really want to talk about. This is all the podcast is really about is what the fuck is going on, man? Like, who are we? Why are we here? Particularly in this moment in time that feels so chaotic that we've had this opportunity to completely reassess you know, what the world looks like, what works about the world, what doesn't work about the world, like our most extreme impulses in every direction have been exposed by what we've been through in the last 18 months. So like on this Sunday, after you've come back from a surf, you're a week into uh, being free in Sydney where you are. It's a week one of uh, freedom back into society, post-vaccination for people. When I ask you the question, who are you? Who are you today? Not who are you tomorrow or who were you yesterday, but who are you today? A dad uh, and person, a person who's chosen a career path that I feel like best suits me. Because this is a weird thing too, like the what you choose to do for a job and how much people kind of identify themselves by that thing. It's such a bizarre it's such a bizarre thing that you kind of pick a thing and you try to just get really good at that thing, hopefully until you die. Um, and hopefully that thing along the way helps you, I don't know, take care of your children or the people you love or um, in some way give back to society. Right now, I'm a, I guess I'm a person who's trying to take myself somewhat seriously as an actor, writer, director, um, creator of things that big only only because I love doing that and it's a really enjoyable thing and it's started to turn into a job so I'm just going to kind of follow that and see if that will someday help me buy a house that I can leave to my children when I turn to stardust or whatever the fuck happens when you die. Oh, we'll, we'll get to that, mate. We'll get to what happens when you die. We'll get there. We'll get <laughs> we there. don't normally jump don't, it's in funny that you say, minute three. It's funny that you're saying, you know, like you're a week in to the, to the freedom thing because I feel like when you've had a few months at home to ponder and um, I guess that's probably what 
everyone's probably become a little more existential during this time because you just have more opportunity to read, listen to things and think more time with your own brain. Um, I, I can't help but feel like walking around that that we've made this version of society, right, that is like this dome of dumb ideas um, <laughs> where we've kind of constructed this really difficult version of life for ourselves that doesn't necessarily need to be there. But we've got all these complex things like currency and economies and um, careers and jobs. And, you know, you you notice it more than ever with this thing. We're just fighting a virus. Like we've been going through civilization is fighting this virus and we in our little communities are doing our best to fight this virus. But we're fighting the virus under the dome of dumb ideas that is kind of like we need to keep the economy moving and the thing that helps us all eat and keeps the houses over our heads. But it's like there's just so much abstract complexity to what society is now that sometimes it's just kind of like... It's hard to get your head around. It, it, so yeah. when we're fighting, like you said, we're all in this war against this disease, a worldwide war against the disease. It is our insight to forget movies like Independence Day. Like if an alien arrives on Earth, that's essentially what happened. We've just been attacked by an alien species that arrived on Earth. Either it came out of an Amazon jungle or a you know, Wuhan lab, depending on which end of the conspiracy theories you tend to be on. Yeah. The point being that... We've seen played out over the last two years how we as a world will and won't work together to combat a threat to us all and how much we prioritise those things. Like, As a person, as somebody who's been observing that, what have been your major observations? Like, What have you been, I guess, I mean, it's easy to probably look at what you've been disappointed by. Um, what have you been excited by? Or both? I mean, it's really, what is really funny is you realise that all those kind of apocalyptic movies where there is some big giant threat have never actually told the whole story. Um, like if you imagine Armageddon in reality now, it would kind of be like, you know, you'd have the, the media would be rushing towards Earth and then the, all the politicians and the generals would rush into the room and they'd be like, all right, there's a media headed for Earth. What we need to do is, and another one would like put their hand up and go, hold on though, is there really a media yeah. headed for Earth? And like, yes, no, there definitely is. We've got imagery of it. Like, yeah, but hold on, are we sure that that imagery photos. is accurate? Yeah. Is it, was that imagery on CNN or was it on Fox or where did the, where was the imagery shown? No, no, no. It's just literally the scientists saw the imagery. Yeah, but we which scientists because different scientists have different opinions and yeah. no well yeah but 99.6 percent of scientists agree that there's a media headed for earth yeah but what about the other point yeah, for but my my osteopath doesn't reckon it's exactly and i heard on a podcast sometime you know that like medias are just a, a false flag or whatever are we sure like just the the complexity of the argument to get anyone to agree on some giant existential threat is it's clearly like a really difficult thing for different people to agree on i think maybe george rr R. martin hit it more on the head in Game of Thrones where you've got all these different kind of houses and kingdoms squabbling against themselves in fighting while the threat of the White Walkers is ever approaching nearer and you just I feel like that's maybe more the reality of like what we're living in where different people kind of just find it hard to get their heads around something that they can't see that is in fact there um, but I guess what's I guess what's excited me about it is I reckon it's really easy to get cynical about and really easy to get kind of like lean into the nihilistic thing of like, God, we're all useless and we all just squabble amongst ourselves. The reality is we are pressing on like, and we are getting through it and, and we have made some kind of pretty dramatic changes very quickly to be able to kind of deal with it and handle it and life will go back to 
whatever, you know, whether or not you could call the way that we live normal, I don't know. That's a whole other conversation. But it will go back to normal in terms of what we consider to be normal. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you about the optimism. It's been hard to see the optimism at the moment. But I was thinking about this the other day. There was a time two years ago where we did not know if there was actually going to be a vaccine to this disease. The world was gripped by this terrible disease, unlike anything that we've seen in our lifetime. And we did not know at the time that they would even be able to develop a vaccine. And then within 18 months, we had so many vaccines, it became a problem that people would choose between which of the vaccines was... I mean, the miracle is that we came up with this thing that is probably as important to the world in a life-saving sense as the invention of sewers, you know, sewerage and, you know, running toilets in the lives that it would have saved in our lifetime. And the fact that we managed to do that as a world in 18 months and get, I mean, here in Australia, the numbers of vaccinated people, despite the people who... we would complain about the ones who you know are anti the vaccine or spreading misinformation or these sort of things is going to be remarkably high the 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 positive story is that most people did the right thing in the end regardless most people did the right thing yeah and you might like you can get kind of hung up on the people who aren't doing the right thing but it's a very small percentage and this is the thing about all the news and you know social media and all that where we you know can find our information and consume our information is the things that outrage us are generally the loudest or um the things that are kind of like the people that seem the most cooked uh are kind of the ones that are shared the loudest and those viewpoints are the ones you see on the news but it does represent a very small portion of the community in terms of people that are bugging out over it. Um, I guess it does represent... The thing that I find interesting about people not buying into the um, vaccination idea so easily is just what it represents in terms of this kind of growing distrust in leadership and establishments and the people that, I guess, keep the dome of dumb ideas (laughs) uh, together. and because I think that is very real. Like, I think you can look at any of these things, whether it's, you know, flat earthers or, um, you know, people who think that the Twin Towers is a false flag or people that think mass shootings don't actually happen. And they're all kind of like there's there's different communities that have different things that they think are, are completely made up. And I guess vaccination, the vaccination argument at the moment is the loudest because it's kind of combined a bunch of those communities. You've kind of got the a lot of the wellness, yoga, kind of essential oil types that have kind of been able to get in there, plus the, you know, um, Trump's giant support base and the, you know, the existing distrust they have in the democratic establishment and all that, plus then conspiracy theorists and classic tinfoil hat-wearing dudes. Um, and, and this... I guess this whole COVID, you know, pandemic vaccination thing has almost been like a Voltron of all those different (laughs) ideas. It is. It's Avengers Assemble of like, you know, if you're a flexible kombucha drinker who's ever wanted to meet a Nazi, there's never been a better time to be alive. Exactly. Yeah, there's some some real kind of wild couples being made up between those folks. Uh, Okay. All right. So that's positive. But you talk about the Dome of Dumb Ideas, which I like, I love by the way, because it shows what we've been through shows how many of those ideas were dumb ideas and how, how many of the ways that our society is constructed, you know, are built, built on flawed premises or pre-existing premises that are maybe not relevant to our society anymore, which brings us, I think, quite neatly to a project that you're working on um, with Craig Rucastle. So tell us about um, what it is 
and why you were interested in this. And I think it'll lead to a broader discussion around some of these uh, domes of dumb ideas. Yeah, so um, we've been working on a documentary called Big Deal, which is just essentially, it's an exploration into the health of Australia's democracy and trying to understand, I guess, why, um, if and why money is a big part of it. Um, and when I talk about money, I mean kind of, you know, donations to political parties, uh, lobbying and kind of outside influence into the democratic system. And the reason I'm kind of interested in this idea is I have been kind of spending a lot of time doom scrolling and watching what's been happening in the United States. Um, and I guess the, the we could all share in the idea that it looks a bit messy over there um but we also know very well you know there's a very open conversation about money in that political system people know the nra is hugely powerful and they're able to kind of pick politicians that they want to back and um you know support their campaigns people know that the health insurance lobby over there is like hugely influential and um that they've been able to shape conversation around things like free healthcare into seeming like this crazy socialist communist idea um and that that you know man many American people kind of just believe and that's there's something that they've completely bought into um, and will probably prevent you know any kind of anything that looks like Medicare from ever happening in the United States which is you know horrible but um, I, I think the thing is I've long looked through my phone at America and thought that oh you know that's a that's a country with a whole lot of problems but I never actually thought about what it's like in our own backyard here within our own political system and so um, teaming up with Jungle, who are a production company here that have made a lot of great stuff, uh, and then Jennifer Peedham as an EP. Jen Peedham has made a bunch of documentaries like uh, Mountain, River, Sherpa, um, stuff that's done really well around the world. And then finally with Craig Rucastle from The Chaser and War on Waste, uh, we set out to kind of make, yeah make a documentary to better understand the problem and understand how it's affecting our own democracy. What, where did you start uh, in regard to what you knew? Because so, so for someone like me, I'll, I'll set the table a little bit. For somebody like me, I look at how much, you know, political donations, particularly anonymous political donations, you know, shape, you know, the state of the world. I mean, the truth of it is that, you know, we're in the trouble we're in with the climate and this is a massive oversimplification, but one I'm willing to make, which is there's about 100 fossil fuel companies around the world that have done most of the fucking damage to the planet. And the reason they've continued to do most of the damage to the planet is that they have been putting huge amounts of corporate dollars into governments all over the world to protect their interests. So, like, it has massive ramifications where this money comes from on the people who are making the decisions. How aware of that in the context of Australia were you when you started out on this project not particularly aware of the of the influence that it had within australia and australian politics and i guess i'm with you in that i understand you know a business is going to do what a business does like this is the thing about you know capitalism and i guess hyper capitalism in this kind of the more we push it to anything's for sale and the more power we give businesses and the more free reign i mean they're just going to do what they do right like that's the you know, there's a famous story about the light bulb companies coming together. They designed light bulbs that um, could last, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of hours. But what happened was people started buying less light bulbs. Um, so people went, so the light bulb companies all got together in a kind of mafia style head of the light bulb company meeting, which I love the 
I love to picture what that meeting looks like. Um, and they all got together. Like, and said, a lot of people having great ideas. Yeah. You know, that's what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Bing, a bing, light bulb bing, bing, bing. <laughs> um, but they all got together and in a light bulb moment decided that no light bulb should last longer than a thousand hours, you know, and then they enforced yep. that across the industry. Um, and that meant that lots of people had to buy a light bulb. And, and this kind of like, it's just planned obsolescence, but that's carried through to mobile phones, technology, apps, computers, cars. You know, there, there was a time when all cars were just, they kind of look the same and they were all black and then the car companies worked out oh no you paint them red and you paint them orange and you release a new version once a year and that makes people buy new cars and you know fashion there's literally no reason that the fashion trend should tra- should change year on year it's just that the fashion companies are like oh we need to sell more shit you know so we know what companies do companies will do what they do and that's mm. that's kind of fine because I guess the dome of dumb ideas as we've got it is based on this idea of perpetual growth I mean that we could talk for three and a half hours about just how ridiculous it is to need a society that runs on perpetual growth in what is essentially a finite world. I mean, if our world was growing by 10% every year, maybe that would make more logical sense, but it doesn't. <laughs> um, everything just kind of is the same. You've got the same amount of shit in the planet and everyone expects everything to constantly grow. That's, that's Surely at some point that's going to be unsustainable. Um, but the... So I think there's this thing where we we need to understand that companies are going to always want to uh, increase their profits. Companies are always going to want to grow and expand. But at at some point, the governing bodies surely need to be able to separate themselves from that process. Or like the, the closer that process gets to the way in which we run our countries, surely at some point there's going to be people that get... you know, they get hard done by or they get left out or... I mean, that's... I just... I guess to to try and put that more succinctly, companies will do what companies do. Do we really want them doing what they do within our political system? Um, That's my question. And I guess the more... You know, I spent kind of two years running around with Craig talking to different people and trying to get a better understanding of this. And it really... It seems that the, the system of kind of, you know political donations um, particularly when they're not very transparent and particularly when they're as much money as one can afford and one party is willing to accept that whole system it doesn't really seem to benefit anyone except the donors and the politicians who are kind of looking for them the money because although there's not a I should I should say really clearly too we didn't make a, a documentary about corruption it's not about corruption or illegal activity it's just a documentary about what is perfectly legal and what exists yeah, within you, the, you're showing the system working how the system is designed to work exactly and it's not a partisan thing you know it's like it's completely all the parties do it uh, in particular you know Labor, Labor and Liberal are, and the coalition are kind of you know they're massive fundraisers mostly in part because they need to compete with each other I mean this is kind of the ridiculous Ridiculous yeah. thing, right? And and also the the funny thing often you know uh, contributed to by the same people. Yeah, like yeah, you know, some people backing both of them oh. in a like in an arms race that doesn't need to exist in the first place. I, they're both taking money and under the thumb of some donor yeah. who is backing both sides in this situation. It's it's absurd. I mean, it's an incredibly absurd system. Yeah. Like I mean, and the, and the bigger it becomes, like the American system, obviously, where you have you have to have like millions and billions of dollars to even be able to run for president you know like it takes so long it costs so much in advertising this entire infrastructure of like funding and funds and power and meetings and all these sort of things that are set up around just the constant fundraising of having to be 
I mean, yes. It, okay. Again, I'm. I'm. This is so exciting to me because I it just is such an area that I think is worth examination. But what yeah. were the biggest shocks? To I you mean, like with the yeah, like know. even just, just sorry. Before we get to that, I just no. you know, there's a podcast about philosophy, right? Like the even philosophically, like even like obviously the the donating of money to parties um, is you know on one level you can see how that's kind of muddy. We human beings have got this thing called reciprocity that's built into us, right? Where it's like, if someone does you a favor, you want to do a person a favor back. There's a guy, there's a German dude, I think his name was Philip Kuntz, which is a great name, um, who at one point did this study on reciprocity where he kind of like took a photo of his family and he wrote a letter and he sent it out to like... 200 random people to say thank you so much for the Christmas present you know Merry Christmas from us and our family hope you guys are doing great and he got letters back from people who have no idea who he was just because they felt they just felt obliged to get back to him like because he'd done something nice for them um, we'd you know you know what it's like if a mate lends you money when you're in a tight spot then when that mate's in a tight spot you're going to do what you can to help him out um, when people do nice things for you you want to do nice things for them there's, there's absolutely no way in which politicians have some way of like hacking the biological hardware that's built into them as human beings um, which if, if somebody's lent them you know out of the goodness of their heart lent them $120,000 for their next election it's it's not like they're going to be able to choose not to do that person a favor. Like it doesn't even have to be corrupt. It doesn't even have to be the, the fact that that process is even happening is just philosophically muddy. Um, you know, the, the other thing is so many people I think would, would ask, Oh, what's happened to those great politicians with their big ideas. Right? Like I think lots of people think Mm. that now, and this is another kind of philosophical, this is what I wanted to say before that I completely forgot is that, we once had a world where a politician would be driven by a big idea of how to shape a country or how to shape society. And it would be that idea that they would communicate with passion that would make people want to vote for them, that would make people want to get behind what they're doing. But it's not the big ideas that win elections now, it's the loudest ideas. And the big ideas don't ever get to get heard because the Labour and Liberal Party, like in our country, are just arms racing each other to raise the most amount of money possible and then buying the most amount of airtime and ad space they can possible in which they can create ads with that money that they've had donated to them. They can create ads that can be complete bullshit. Like political advertising is not held to any... I mean, you'd know all about this. The truth in advertising laws do not apply to political advertising, which is absurd, again. And so they're, they're just... The reason that we get served these three-word slogans and the kind of same shit over and over and over again that just seems like a different incarnation of the same idea that's just blurted out to you uh, from expensive ads and we're not hearing kind of like groundbreaking ideas to reshape society and drive the nation forward and the same sorts of like exciting stuff you would hear from politicians in the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know. Um, I think part of that is just that because all because everyone's um, just raising money so that they can buy huge amounts of ads, they just don't have to think uh, that much about having remarkable ideas. And in fact, r- remarkable ideas aren't how you cut through. How you cut through is just having the most amount of money to spend on advertising. I probably just said the same thing eighty eight different ways. But yeah, but but you're right, and it's worth repeating, and it's worth like acknowledging what role advertising plays in it because that's the 
bit at the end of the funnel is it that you know we need to buy these ads we need to do this advertising we need to get ourselves out there and so the fact that then that information that is contained in that advertising is not even regulated for truth for having to be factual we saw this you know, up close, obviously, with Craig Kelly and the messages that he was sending out to, because also the spam laws don't apply to the politicians. They can send a message to everybody's phone. And Craig Kelly was sending people links to very dubious, like, you know, information around COVID and COVID cures and stuff, all under this pretense that it was like political advertising. So in a time when we don't need dangerous misinformation out there, the fact that like, we have, you know, politician, you know, sponsored and funded bad information going out there and it can't be regulated is a problem in itself. So many things to unpack here. Um, what was the thing that um, shocked you the most? What was when you first discovered, like, you know, you first started to dip your toe into this world? What was the first thing that blew your mind? The very first thing that blew my mind was that is that I, I was talking to someone, I can't remember her name, she's in the documentary. I was talking, and we went down to Canberra, I was talking to her, and um, I said, okay, so it sounds like it, it is a problem here, but surely it's not as bad as America. And she was like, well, in some ways, it's worse. And that that blew my mind because, you know, like I said, I think all of us can look at America and go, that's a shit fight over there. Now, it doesn't mean that the problem is as far gone as it is in America here, but... When it comes to transparency, um, they're they're much further ahead than we are. Um, oh. It's it's a much more transparent system over there, so uh, people know about who's da- donating to who earlier. Um, there's better ways to track the donations. Um, you know, politicians have much more open diaries in the United States, and um, they have to share who they're meeting with and you know why and whatnot, and all that stuff is kind of made more clear. Um, the the transparency seemed to be a big factor here because on a federal level, we might not know about donations for, say, 12 to 18 months down the track. Um, any donations under $14,500 don't have to be declared at all. Um, and there are ways that people seem to be able to get around that as well in terms of like if they want to donate a large amount of money across a year, they can break it up into smaller donations. Uh, donations can come from different companies or different, you know, bodies. Um, and so I guess, yeah, the lack of transparency was one thing. I guess the other thing is just the industry that has sprung up around it. Like mm-hmm. we're talking billions of dollars, like over you know over a decade. I mean, there's a, a billion dollars in dark money over a decade. So that's when I say dark money, that's the money that's not even um, that's not even accounted for. But then on top of that, these fundraisers where that you know tickets for for lunch that are five thousand dollars to a hundred thousand um, dollars. You know, people spending. One of the guys, Jeff McCloy, who's like a former property developer. I think he's still a property developer, but a former mayor of Newcastle and from up that way who in fact the 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 new south wales icac had found made unlawful donations um and and he was kind of this guy who's famous for like driving around in a bentley handing out wads of ten thousand bucks cash in brown paper bags to to pollies to get stuff done but you know he was quite openly just talking about the fact that he'd pick up the phone and uh buy a hundred thousand dollar ticket to a a lunch and then he'd be able to choose the politician that he's going to sit down next to like that's that's wild like it is wild that that's and openly talking about it because it's not essentially corruption. It's the way that those fundraising things, you know, often work. 
Um, it's how it works. Yeah. So, like, so that I've seen that up close. So I have a policy that I don't do political, regardless of whether I believe in the cause or not. I just tend to not do fundraisers for you know anything that is associated with the political party like sometimes for a cause but not just but if it's a political party associated thing i only ever ever did once one one in my life and it was so disheartening it was for i'll say it was for it was for the alp Mm -hmm. and um uh i you know it was a big thing like goff whitlam was there it was like a really cool like i sat at a table with like goff and like it was really like quite fun and then I started looking around the room and asking some questions about what was going on. And it was exactly what you've explained. It was one of those nights where like a whole bunch of people from like the, the building industry, you know, construction industry, whatever, had all paid, you know, incredibly huge amounts of money to be at tables in this room sitting next to ministers from the government or potential ministers from the government. And yeah, they'd paid premium prices, like you said, tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars to sit next to the key decision makers. And I'm like, well, how is this not just like, yeah, I know, I know that they're getting like, you know, a choice between the beef and the chicken, but it feels like the dinner is not the like me doing my stand up comedy is not the important part of this night. It is not what has brought us all together. And you know what? A lot of people didn't want to be there. This is the other thing. Like this is the other thing you work out. And I guess this is kind no, of. I got that from when I was doing my stand up. I got a, I got the idea. A few people didn't want to be there. <laughs> <laughs> when you start ripping into them with political jokes, yeah, that's gonna, they're going to get a bit uncomfortable. But the um the like you, the more you talk to people, the more you and look. And this is why I think this thing fits so neatly into this dome of dumb ideas too, right? Because it's essentially this arms race where if Labor have raised X amount of money, Liberal need to raise X amount of money because they both want to outspend each other come election time. So the two major parties. They're busy trying to outraise each other, right? But so there's an arms race on that level. But then it also goes within the party. So say, for example, I was talking to Sam Dastiari. Now, one of the things that helped Sam Dastiari raise through the Labor Party so quickly was he was a wonderful fundraiser. He was really great at it. And 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 that bought him clout and respect within the party. And it helps you get things done. You know, if, if you're bringing in lots of funds to the party, people listen to you, people pick up the phone when you ring, and, um, you know, you have some level of being able to negotiate your way through issues within the party, right? But it also means that if I'm some other person from the ALP and I see Sam raising all this money, I'm starting to think, oh gosh, I've got to raise more money, you know? I've got to I've got to get better at my fundraising. And then other people are trying to then out fundraise each other. And that's happening within both of the parties too. So there's this arms race just even internally to be like a good fundraiser. And then and then outside of that, you've then got the business and the lobbying community and they're all kind of going like, well, if our competitors have got a seat at the table, then we need a seat at the table. And there's almost like a race from the outside too. But what you, and I guess this is kind of a promising thing, and I is that when you talk to people, particularly when the camera's not rolling, um, they kind of, whether they're politicians or business people, they're kind of like, ah, oh, it's a bit of a pain in the ass. Like, you know, politicians don't, they didn't get into politics to become fundraisers. You know, like they, they right. genuinely, most politicians really do want to help their constituents and make the country a better place and find ways to enact the change that, that they've got within them that they want to kind of set out to change. But they kind of get caught up in this, you know, uh, this process because it's just part of the way things are done. Um, and then in the business community too, a lot of people are kind of like, I don't like, one bloke said like, I f- it feels like I'm getting a shakedown every time the phone rings and like, oh, you know, it's the party and we'd like like to let you know we have another fundraising dinner on and want to know if you want some tickets. And it's kind of like, no one's saying, you know, no one's saying on the phone, you're going to want these tickets. 
if you want to get shit done. But at the same time, it's just people understand that unless you unless you're at the fundraiser, you don't have the access. And that I think we need to remember too, like business people, smart business people and smart businesses, they don't give money away. You know, like everyone's been at some point had a job where they're like nervous about hitting up their boss for a pay raise, right? Or talking to your boss about a Christmas party and, you know, or, you know, even if you, when I was a landscaper, it'd be like, we'd we'd all get together and go, all right, how are we going to pitch Charlie an idea of chucking a Christmas party and buying some cases for the boys? Like people don't, they don't give money away. Um, And so it's just funny that there's this process of giving like, thousands tens of thousands hundreds of thousands sometimes millions to political parties and it's all kind of you know above board the discussion is yeah we're just supporting democracy um you know but it can't be that (laughs) like how how can businesses make such large investments without some return on investment you know and it's um so coming back to what's kind of shocking about yeah, it. So, well, okay, but no, hang on. I, I, now I've just got to, we can, we'll get to it, but yeah. I, I need to ask you this because of course all of this is true. It is what I saw in that room that night. It's what anyone who thinks about this for more than one second realizes. Of course, the businesses don't give money if they don't think that they get some benefit from that in return. Like, of course, the people who are there, you know, if you're sitting next to the premier, it's better than sitting next to the environment minister or whatever, if, you know, the issue is, you know, or what, you know, and if you're paying more for that, then you're getting better access. That just makes complete sense. Like, we're human beings. We understand that. And so, how did we let this system develop in the first place? Like, like why, why is this the system? Like, how did it come to be? Did you get any insight into that? It's a really good question. And I reckon that that in and of itself probably has a documentary worth of meat. Um, because there have been certain changes that have happened along the way that, you know, a lot of people pointed that toward during Howard's, um, uh, era it started we started to see a lot more of it um but um no i never got to the core of why it started happening and um how it came to be the system as it is and i mean you hit it's funny like there are certain roads you go down where you start to run into what are almost feel like deliberately complex conversations so one of those being like when you start talking about why aren't there truth in political advertising laws, you know, people start going, well, you know, what is the truth is a very difficult, uh, you know, concept and something can have a small nugget of truth and thereby be, you know, deemed truthful. Um, and then even, you know, in the Supreme Court or the High Court, they would suggest that the spending of money is in fact freedom of speech, like that money is equivalent to speech. So you can't stop, you know, if you were to stop the political parties from being able to buy advertising, what would happen then would just millions billionaires and billionaires would and giant lobby groups would get together and they would just buy all the advertising and and they'd have the loudest voice during the election cycle uh, and i mean they kind of talk about these these reasons for not making change they talk about them as if they're kind of set in stone and that's half that has to i be was gonna say i mean all these things uh may be how it is but all these things are not how it needs to continue to yeah. be. Like, I mean, things can be changed. Laws can be changed. We can put in, well, what can, what will we do? These lobby groups will come in and do this. Well, we can make rules against exactly. that. We can, like, yeah. We've got rules about a whole Change bunch of things. Rules. We can fix that I out. I mean, there's, a, there's yeah. a famous story about the dude who came up with the uh, Sydney Harbour Bridge Walk idea, right? 
And so he was like, oh, you know, it'd be sick as if I could get a bunch of people walking over the Harbour Bridge. And so he went to the council and kind of pitched this idea, the, the, the Sydney City Council or whatever, or whoever's in charge of the Harbour Bridge, and kind of said, I want to get people kind of being able to walk over the Harbour Bridge. And we charge them some money and the council makes some money and I'll make some money and it'll be great. And um, they gave him back this list of like a hundred. They said, firstly, they said, no, it can't be done. And then he was like, well, why can't it be done? You know, and they're like a whole bunch of reasons. He's like, give me all the reasons. Give me every reason it can't be done. And, and they gave him like 121 reasons why you, you can't have human beings walking over the Harbour Bridge, ranging from everything from like people could fall off, it's not going to be safe, you know, they'll be distracting to the eye of drivers and, you know, all sorts of things, right? And the dude just one by one worked his way through this list. So the, the whole reason you're strapped into a harness and there's harnesses that hold you in there is to tick a few of those boxes off. The whole reason you have to put on a grey jumpsuit is so that you don't stand out from the colour of the bridge itself and distract drivers. But... The, the point being is humans are capable of solving more than one problem at once. So, uh, yeah, I never buy... Yeah, when- no, i got to be honest with you. I reckon we need this guy to sort out uh, the political system. He sounds yeah. like we can just give him a list of 100 things fix. and he'll work through it. Totally. But I mean, this is the like this is the other thing. In terms of solutions, the world has plenty yeah. to offer, right? Like in Ireland, mm. people started to you know, really get the shits with the imbalance that was happening and they didn't like the way that, you know, if you were a millionaire, you'd be able to donate heaps of money and get access to politicians. And if you're a normal person who didn't have that, you wouldn't. And in Ireland, um, they ended up implementing a system where they've got much better uh, rules and regulations in place, being much more tightly policed, but also where things like there's a thousand euro limit for donations and that applies to everyone. So like I could, you know, whether I'm me or Clive Palmer, we can each only donate up to a thousand euros. and where the books, you know, meetings have to be logged and registered and transparency happens much more quickly. But I mean, we even have have solutions here. Like Queensland, um, their transparency of anyone who's donating, they, they make that stuff public within seven days. Queensland have like a lobby register where lobbyists are kind of like, you know, registered and have to... Um, you know, log down their details in a book and all this stuff's available and journalists can see it and people can see where, you know, who's visiting their politicians and they've got open access to the diary so you can see who's meeting who on what day. Um, and, but trans- So, okay, so that, like, which seems like a very simple way to start, right? Like, just make everything more transparent, you know, have some sort of, like, idea of... Like, for me, if you had to, like... And you're the person who's made a documentary about this. So this is all, my stuff's all from my gut without having done the time and the research, right? But for me, the biggest one is always real-time transparency. Yeah. Because I think if we think that fixing the amount you can donate or whatever is too hard in the short term, I at least want to see that, like, you know, uh, Harvey Norman donated $150,000 and then got this, th- you know, six months later, there was this, like, I-, I can see at least what is being played out in real time. To me, that feels like such an important first. And if only, if only for the sake that there will be more trust built from that process. Right. Like, I think, you, you know, sometimes, sometimes we can think in the abstract with, um, you know, politicians and democracy and things like that. But I think at the end of the day, it comes down to, it's just a human relationship. Like we have a human relationship with our politicians. If, 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 you know, if your husband disappeared for four days, right? And then came home and you said, look, I just, I'd like to know where you were for those four days. He's like, yeah, look, I'll tell you in a year and a half. Like, what are you going to think? 
You know, like you're going to expect the worst. And and he might have just like. been playing golf and fucking, you know, having a good time. And he might have been at work long hours. Like it right. doesn't mean something dodgy happened, but you still expect a certain level of transparency, <laughs> a certain level of accountability, of honesty. And that's in every relationship. You know, whether you're a parent, if, you're, if your kid, you know, just went out one night and just came home with, you know, pinhole pupils uh, and, you know, chewing his jaw and you were like, what were you doing uh, all night? And he's kind of just like, oh, no, I was just hanging out with the boys but um you know you can don't speak to i just slept over and we watched a movie uh but don't talk to mr and mrs peterson um and don't bother you know like there's people get up like we know that mischief happens in the in the darkness like and and i actually just think it's such an important this is this is the other thing i just think it's so important to fix trust between us and politicians Uh and it's like it's in their best interest it's in our best interest um one could think that the dome of dumb ideas is ever is ever suspended on a knife's edge, and it, all it takes is the pu- the public's kind of distrust to roll to a point where they no longer feel like they're protected by the contract that holds this whole thing together, um, and they decide, nah, you know, enough is enough. As we saw happen in America, with a small, a very small portion of people who decided to march into the capital and you know go looking for politicians because they genuinely. Uh, felt like they were on a mission to change the state of their nation. Um, things things yeah. can. Well, happen. this is what you're talking about. It's lack of trust. Lack of so, trust. like trust is being diminished yeah. by both sides of politics as well. Like you know, well, all sides of politics, unfortunately, part of the ecosystem of the way politics is played is diminishing trust. The media landscape, there's definitely been diminishing trust. And of course, when politicians do lie to us or obfuscate, obfuscate, obfuscate. Obfuscate. That did not come out right. Yeah. I gave it a go, but yeah, it did yeah. not come out completely. It's um, the truth. Yeah. Then it genuinely, we we see if the lack of trust can have real world consequences, as we've seen during the pandemic. We needed to have faith in our leaders, and sometimes we did, and sometimes we didn't. And you saw the offshoots of the people who didn't have trust in them. So if like you said, there is some element of this that can regain some of those trusts. Tell me what the argument against real-time reporting is. That's the one I, I can't understand. What's the argument against It's it? really hard. Like, no one really has a strong argument against that one. Uh, I mean, you know, one of the things we did in the documentary was, like, I went into the Labor and the Liberal Party and I said, look, you know, I've set up a Google Doc um, spreadsheet and I'm happy to, like, you just tell me <laughs> you just tell me who donated this month and I'll just chuck it into the Google Doc and right. we'll share it with Australia. Um, because the technology exists. Like, it's there's, it's not a manpower thing. It's not a technology. You know, there, there's someone who's logging those receipts and that information. Like, they're already doing right. the work. It's just a matter of... They would know. They know. They would know what they're they know getting who's, from who. who's donated where it's come from, you know, they know why. Um, it's yeah. There's not really an argument for against better transparency. But that said, better transparency alone doesn't fix the problem because even on a state level, for example, like I said in Queensland, you know, yes, we're finding out about things within seven days, but it's not like... Uh, you know, Santos aren't still donating huge amounts of money and, and able to have some influence over the conversation over there. But, um, or, or such companies, allegedly, you know, whatever, whatever the right legal term is. <laughs> um, but the, the it's funny just how many of those kind of uh, big fossil fuel companies are really close to the, located really close to the Queensland State Parliament. Anyway, um, the... Yeah, the thing is, transparency is is really simple. And if 
you know, firstly, you've got the trust that it would that would benefit. We'd all just love to know what money's coming in from where. We'd love. We'd. I think that would help the public a lot, and that would help politicians with the trust from the public a lot. But also, it would help journo's um, be able to see if there are coincidences that happen as a result mm-hmm. of said donations, because it's really hard practically to kind of join the dots on what's effectively a. a 18 months worth of donations in one giant data dump. It's like, I looked through the spreadsheets. It's like, it's painful. It's the most painful spreadsheet you've ever seen of just different donations and different values and where they've come from. And if that stuff was just being done real time, it wouldn't be like investigative journalists need to go through a big giant data dump and then find something that happened 15 months ago with some policy change that's, you know, six months ago and try and link those things, but it's no longer a current story. The job's been done. The policy's been made. Like, there's not... It's, it's a, it seems... I would expect it seems that having zero transparency is a safer way to operate uh, within this process of donations. Yeah. The, the, uh, well, it would seem the only downside would be if you were genuinely doing something corrupt or that you didn't want linked together by some pesky journalist. That would seem to be like it's hard to it's really hard to um, come up with other reasons for why it's not a good idea. Really, yeah. Okay, so you, two years you talked to people about this. Yeah. Um, who had the best ideas, or like what were the best ideas? Perhaps like it doesn't matter who, I suppose, but you can tell me who. But um, what were the best ideas that you heard? The things that you think, you know, in an Australian context, were the most compelling ideas. So one of the one of the things that seems to be a, a really strong idea is just actually so capping donations and capping the amount of advertising spend during elections. Like they seem to be because the reason I think they're effective ideas, particularly capping spend during elections, is that effectively takes the influence away from money. It actually just it prevents the parties needing to infinitely raise. You know, like and and that therefore if you've hit your cap and, and you can't outspend that, then any lobby group or any organization or any company that's, you know, um, donating a large amount of money isn't really being that helpful to you, thereby that, that money can have, can have no influence. Whether or not it does, doesn't matter. It can't um, because you don't need it as a party. Now, one of the reasons, <clears throat> one of the reasons I think it's clear that both parties probably understand that that's that is something that should be done and is an issue is because historically already there came a point in parliament where parliament decided that uh and this is i think this is evidence that in fact our parliament understand there's a problem um but and a link between money and influence when it comes to this area is that at one point the parliament decided that we should bring in public funding of elections because it would help take the influence away from money. That was the original idea, right? And so we bought in, you know, uh, public election money. And I think, you know, it's managed through the AEC and whatever else. Um, but what happened then was all it did was get added to the private money. <laughs> like, so it's like if it, they had an intention to bring in public money to take the influence away from private money, but then they just left the private money too, which is kind of like, yeah, it's, it doesn't really make sense. Um, if anything, the public purse is just propping up the private money. Um, so I think, and when you talk to, you know, anecdotally when I've spoken to people, people would much rather be paying for elections out of their own pocket than know that the that, that outside money is coming in to pay for elections. Here's the other big thing, is 
politicians would would argue, well, that's what it costs to run an election. And that's like, that's that in itself is a kind of absurd idea because every election gets more expensive and you look at every election, they're spending more on advertising. And there's just this assumption now that to win an election, you have to spend this amount of money. But that is an assumption based on the fact that your opposition have that much money. Like if everybody just had lower amounts of money to spend during the election time, I don't think the Australian public would be complaining that they're getting less friggin' political ads during an election cycle. I mean, it's absurd well, also, how many it, ads you get. That's when it becomes... That's when it becomes the better battle of better ideas. Exactly. And if the system works properly, your local candidate would be the person who, because you can't tell me that in the seat of Gippsland or whatever, where I grew up in country Victoria, that the local member down there isn't still going on every radio show down there in every newspaper down there speaking at, you know, like the opening of the footy club and going to meetings and meeting with people. In fact, they would have to do more of that because they're not going to get, you know, put across the line by the big national ad for their party. So they're addressing, representing their community in the way that our system is set up to be, where you're meant to represent the people of your local area and then take their ideas, you know, to a national Yes. So A, it would incentivize bigger, better ideas, bigger, better like local members who actually engage and care about the community. Like, so it has positive benefits for these people in a genuine trickle down way. If you took this massive amount of advertising money that you took away and they had to be more creative, you would find that your politicians would have to go on the talk shows, the leaders and whatever that have to go on these shows and be interviewed and genuinely talk about what it is that they believe and get their messages out there, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, there's there's probably, there's a whole documentary in two-party politics too um, as a side thing too because I, I think the other thing is, you know, this whole system too, one could argue, feels like a bit of an insurance policy for the two major parties to to remain the two major parties, mm-hmm. you know, because they're, they're right. able to raise so much money. Like every election, it's either going to be the coalition or Labor, you know, in, in any election. But how have we got to a point where that's kind of, it's impossible for any other party to cut through and to win or for independents to be able to come together and forge a new party? Um, we've gotten to that point because these parties have this whole thing. These two major parties have the system locked down. And it's like, we understand in footy, you, you know there's a salary cap because it keeps all the teams competitive right if you took the nrl and you just let manly and melbourne raise all the money they could um and they can they could afford to train the youngest people bring them through get the best people poach them in from anywhere they could afford to grow the most wealthy clubs completely dominate the competition lock out any other team from being competitive and that's we understand that with sport but in politics the competition is ideas and effectively, by being these two hugely wealthy parties that can raise an infinite amount of money, they've got the competition of ideas locked down um, because they can be louder than anybody else. And I, I, th- I genuinely think it's profoundly uh, holding back our nation from being able to like, go forward in, in ways that it can be changing greatly. You know, like it's, it's almost like... Yeah, and and beyond that, there's this weird thing where each of those two parties will totally destroy each other in the process of coming to an election. Like they'll just make up whatever they can about each other to win an election. But at the end of the day, there's this kind of like silent understanding that they're both the benefactors of this, mm-hmm. you know, system that keeps them that keeps the machine propped up. Yeah. Ah, uh, fuck, man. Like I could literally talk to you about this all day, but I want people to actually watch the 
the documentary because this is the best way to you know see all this stuff and and hear about it all so it's on abc but is it also going to be on abc iview will it live on abc iview as well so it's going to be on abc and iview from tuesday the 19th uh, of october and it's in two one-hour episodes so we originally we made it as a film and um there was like there's a 90 minute film version of it and then uh we did it as two one-hour episodes where there's some additional stuff um, and where we get to lean a little bit further into some ideas. But, you know, one of the things I did find making this documentary and that Craig found too is you kind of, the central issue leads into these other issues. Like you, we kind of stayed focused on kind of money and politics. Um, so in particular, the access gained by donors, the influence that, um, you know, that, that that opportunity has the potential to wield, um, you know, the process of straight donating, fundraising, and then I guess lobbying as an industry. Because uh, that's an interesting thing too. There are now almost four lobbyists for every politician in Canberra. Um, and as Jackie Lambie put it, they're like fucking locusts. They're everywhere, you know. Um, and that that industry is is growing and growing. And it's a complicated thing because you can you can not like the idea of lobbying, right? But then if you have an issue that you really care about, you kind of like the idea of lobbying because <laughs> it can be it, it can both it can either be on your side of the fence or not on your side of the fence, and whether you look at it um, as a positive or negative thing yeah, can depend on but the that's, issue. That's often that's often at the heart of this, right? Though, yeah. do we have a system set up that? clearly benefits one you know side of it like i.e the people who have a lobbyist so if you are on the other side of the debate and you can't afford a lobbyist and you're suddenly up against like you know like you know say for example i don't know they were going to knock down the park near my house and build a wedding reception center and the wedding reception center has like a powerful lobby that goes in and talks to the politicians and buys you know ten thousand dollar seats at their events versus the local community group who are trying to save their park then well it doesn't like i'm sure the local community group would be love to be able to lobby but they can't lobby at least in that same way they have to find more creative ways to lobby they start to have marches in the park or they contact the local media or they get like some celebrity lives in the local area to start speaking about it the exact same things that you and I were just asking the politicians to do when we take the money out of the political system. Exactly. All we're asking is that it's fair for everyone. Yeah. That's what the people without money have to do regardless. Yeah. So why is it fair that we have this system where there's these people with money who have this unfair advantage in these in this battle of ideas if it's meant to be a battle of ideas? And you wouldn't really need like this is the other thing you wouldn't need the other lobby if it, the other lobbies if it wasn't for the other lobbies like there's right. is, you know people <laughs> you know if you look at Waringa as a case study with Tony Abbott and Mazali Segal was coming through and that kind of conversation about get up and the people that were kind of financing her side versus uh, the donors that were financing. Tony's side. I mean, it's like in a perfect world, Zali wouldn't have needed any of that support to battle that, you know, to and and in order to have a genuine crack at being able to win that seat. Um, and so I think, you know, for a, if you're an if you're a, think it, that environmental lobbying is a good thing, or that um, you know, yeah, lobbying for the forest, uh, lobbying against rubbish and against plastic and all that is a good thing. That those lobby groups probably wouldn't need to exist to the scale that they do if there wasn't the counterforce of that. Um, that that is already. So, I mean, Dan so well Dan, Dan Illich 
Dan Illich this week, um, uh, the comedian Dan yeah. Illich, I'm sure people have seen what he did. He raised a whole bunch of money and um, yeah, put up some billboards all, all over the place and he's doing it in Glasgow in you know, for COP26. And um, he... Uh, but he actually put the names of his donors on the billboard in Times Square. So if, if Dan Illich can do real-time reporting, I think our political parties can do real-time reporting for their advertisements. Totally. He's just a dude sitting in his room, <laughs> in like literally just sitting in his room booking New York uh, billboards and literally yeah. getting like donors coming through a website, uh, like one of those Indiegogo things or something. And he's busy. I think, I think Dan... I think Dan's like paying for those by extending his mortgage right now until that Indiegogo money clears. Um, at like it's it's it can so be done. Like this is the other right. this. It just occurred to me the whole way through these couple of years. Like they're just I get these random thoughts where I'm kind of like, everyone had a mate at some point who got sponsored, right? Like you either had a mate who got or you knew of a guy from your local area or a chick who's like become a sponsored rollerblader or a sponsored surfer or a sponsored BMX rider. And when you're young, like that idea is just so sick. Someone gets sponsored, they get free shit, they get free clothes, they get, you know, so that sponsorship agreement comes with things that you have to do for the company, right? Like they, they give you money or they give you gear, but you have to wear that gear. Like you have to, you have to walk around with it plastered all over you because that's what they get out of the sponsorship. But isn't it weird that in the political system, organizations and lobbies can completely sponsor politicians, but want nothing in return. You know, like it's it's just it's absurd. It's just so crazy. We'll send you a few free lumps of coal. Yeah, like you can do with them what you want. Funnily enough, that lump of coal did come from the fossil fuel lobby. Like it did. It was and and it was lacquered and polished so it wouldn't get his hands dirty. Like isn't that isn't I mean, that just a metaphor y- for yes. everything? Well, I think it's almost the opposite in that he actually fucking did get his hands dirty regardless. But I agree with you. Yes, it's like, I mean, these things are the showbag of stunts that come with the sponsorship deal. You know, like you've got Gina Reinhardt's name on the back of your footy jumper. And this is the, you know, the stuff you have to do, the dance you have to dance. Mate, again, I want to talk to you about other stuff and I'm aware of your time. So, um, hey... It's so exciting. I'm so glad that you're looking at this. I think it's such an issue that, you know, people need to have more awareness of. And I'm I'm just like having seen the trailers, you know, for the documentary, it just looks super entertaining, which is the best way to get people engaged in this topic, because obviously there is an inbuilt infrastructure that is meant to bore you to death so that you don't pay any attention to it. It's not sexy, right? Yeah. Like, you know, political funding is not a sexy issue, but as we've examined there are so many real-world ramifications for fixing it. I mean, it's it's like, you know, again, democracy seems like this this kind of abstract idea, but, you know, it, during the filming of the doco, one of the guys said to me who I was interviewing is like, what's, it, what's important to you in life? And I was kind of like, family, shelter, food. Like, these are the most important things, right? Family, shelter, food, uh, safety, um my health, healthcare, and it's like all these things are democracy. Like we can we can forget that the like even if surfing is your favorite thing to do, the fact that you can have a job and you can go for a surf or that you can afford the free time where you can fit surfs in, like all these things are democracy. And when we let the health of our democracy get chipped away, it can affect our lives profoundly on all these different levels. Um, so it is really this like really important thing to protect and to keep as pure as we can keep it because the 
the more our democracy represents us as people, the better lives we're all going to have living under it. Um, but yeah, I think you know that that was a real that was a real thing for me during the doco was actually realizing realizing how important our system is and that it is something that it's kind of on us to keep you know to 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 ensure that it it continues to represent us. Um, that's the other really interesting thing about Dan's billboards. You know, Dan, when I saw Dan on CNN, Dan Illick on CNN, he was just saying, well, I just, you know, I just want to let people know that, you know, this party does not represent us and our, our government does not represent us. And I just think that's like, that's that's a wonderful statement that a citizen can make. And, uh, you know, we're very fortunate to live in a government where one can make that statement um, without disappearing <laughs> in the middle of the night. Um, but at the same time, you know, that's a very, that's just such... That's at the heart of what all this stuff's about. That you, you know, if you, if you feel like there's a problem with um, the system, you can talk about it and you can raise it. And you can. What he just did was found a bunch of other people who care about the issue as much as he did and were willing to chip in a few bucks. And he's bought billboards, and it's quite hilarious. Yeah. Did Did you get much pushback? Like, I mean, were there people who were unhappy about the fact that you were exploring this? Uh, I'm not sure because in this scenario, Craig Rucastle had to do a lot of the calling around and the organisation <laughs> chats. And so he probably took a few of the bullets on that side. Um, it's kind of funny when Craig came on. So for those who Craig did the chaser and war on waste and fight for planet A, and he's kind of got a history of like uh, causing trouble for politicians. Um, so when he came on as the director of a political documentary, uh, I was chuckling because I'm like, what politician's going to pick up the phone to Craig Rucastle? Like, Who's going to want to talk to us? Uh, and what's funny is that you go down to Canberra with Craig and he just has such a rapport and re- level of respect from all the pollies down there. And, you know, whether it's state or federal, um, they all really respect him, love him, and, and actually love the work that all, all that mob have done um, over the years they've been doing it. So it's, you know, it's really interesting. The other thing I realised during the process of filming was it's not helpful to be super cynical. Like... Uh, so I've always been a bit, or the more that I think about politics as an adult, the more kind of cynical I get, where you start to have those ideas mm-hmm. of like, uh, is it even worth voting? You know, what? who's really representing you? Do these people really care about us? Are they listening to us? You get all those kind of ideas, right? And that's a really easy place to go with your mind because it doesn't require you to do anything. Like uh, being cynical and super negative is kind of like, it's it's... It's kind of the easiest space to be in because you can just go, ah, they'll politicians will be politicians, and I'm not going to worry about that. It's all too much. It's all too complicated. Um, but the reality is, if you're, st- they want you staying out of it. Like if you're staying out of it, you're not involved in democracy. You're not expecting anything from them. Whereas if you're getting involved and you're leaning in and you're actually like joining groups or kind of, you know, going to meet with local people and, you know, trying to talk to your local member and telling them what you care about, you're actually creating a a need for them to keep you happy. And this is, you know, it's, it's, I've, I've long struggled with that idea of like, people, you know, when people go, if you don't like it, leave, or if you don't love it, get the hell out of here, or like, what's your problem, right? So the, there can be a, people who engage in activism, there can be a thing where a lot of people can be like, ah, you're a bloody whinger if you don't like it, you know, piss off or whatever, right? But it's, it's such a crazy idea to think that because in everything that's important to us in life, we have to put work into it. Like, if you want a relationship to work, you have to pour work into it. If you want, 
to be a good parent, you have to pour love and work into your children. You take them to footy on the weekends. You go to sport. You Nothing good in life comes from just doing nothing. And it's the same. That's actually like, I think the more you love your country and the more you respect the potential that it has, the more it actually motivates you to want to do something about it and to actually lean in. And I think as soon as you start engaging with groups and you start, I know for me on this doco, like it was actually just seeing the groups of people who were motivated and who, you know, understood the at, at a simple level, you don't need to be a political genius. You don't need to know shit about politics. If you're good at baking cupcakes, you can bake some cupcakes and bring them along to a protest or bring them along to a meeting or you can make some cookies and, you know, bring them or if you've got a great esky, you can rock up with your great esky and people can put champagne in it. It's like you don't need to be amazing at anything. You just kind of do whatever you can do to help those around you. And, and, and that's just the foot in the door with being able to, you know, be active within democracy. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, that's an exciting idea in of itself, which is the idea that we have some sort of collective responsibility, right? Yeah. And I couldn't agree with you more when it comes to if you don't like it, leave it. Like, I mean, no, if you... That's like, I mean, walking into your, like, you know, your living room and your dog's done a shit on the carpet and you're like well man if you don't like it here yeah no i'll just clean up the dog it's like shit. taking it's your dog better, does a right? shit and then it's actually, like taking, i do love it here i just yeah and yeah. then it's like taking your dog to the pound because it did a shit and you're like like that's the, yeah. the it's just the it's the quickest <laughs> easiest cop out Every, like it it actually proves you love your country more if you're willing to do something to help it reach its reach its potential right like that's things that require work uh, kind of show that you're invested in it. They show that you love it. If you're going to take time out of your day to try and, you know, make your country a better place uh, or even your local area a better place or your park cleaner or your beach cleaner or whatever it might be, that shows how much you love that space. And uh, the thing that I am interested in is this idea that, like, we rely on each other so much and yet... I think we forget that we can just like do things together to make things better. And it's weird to me that we forget that because we have so much evidence that it is absolutely what happens all the time. The one that, so it's just such an obvious one, but marriage equality, right? Remember the fucking fuss? that people had about marriage equality and like the, the arguments about, well, if you don't like it here and uh, well, no, well, they can have it, but it has to be called something differently or like, like all this fuck, we'll have to get everyone to, but like, Whenever that was, like it could have been 30 years ago in as much as people are so used to the world we now live in. Like even the most fervent, I'd love if they did another vote because I reckon it'd be 95% people saying yes because I reckon there was just a whole bunch of people who thought, believed some of that bullshit about whatever bad things were going to happen who've now just gone, oh yeah, none of those things happened. All those things we were warned about, all those people yelling about all how it was going to destroy our society – it's it's only better. Like Australia is only a better place now that everyone can equally get married, like, right? And even if you and don't th- think it's better um, on a moral level or whatever, like, you know, speaking for right. people who might have that really conservative viewpoint, either way, your life has not changed at all. No, like, n- at nothing all. has changed. Yeah. It's bizarre. Yeah, okay. So anyway, yeah. we, I'll have to get you back here another time because there's so much uh, else about your life that I want to talk about. But I have some standard questions that I ask at the end of the show and I want to ask you those questions. Sick. We've we've already um, touched on one of them, which is uh, what do you think happens when we die? Yeah, I, I'm lately, I'm, I'm kind of 
I've had a few dreams throughout my life where I die in my dream and I just enter this big blue ball of light. And the the big blue ball of light has everybody I've ever known, everybody I've never known, and everybody that will ever exist or has ever existed within this big blue ball of light. And it is simply a feeling of comfort. And it just feels like, oh, everything's okay. <clears throat> and that's like when I've had that, I've had that dream at times when I'm like fearing death. One of the, you know, when I was in hospital uh, in 2009, I spent six months in hospital with tuberculosis and I was very scared I was going to die. And this dream I had a couple of times and it just, the dream made me feel like, oh, there's not a reason to fear death because you're just going to join everyone and everything in a giant big blue ball of light. Now that sounds ridiculous, but it kind of feeds into my, I think my belief that I've just started piecing together is that I think every religion that hap- that exists in the world has a basis of truth to it and then also has these layers of whatever political power there was at the time and whatever kind of human political needs they had for that society, depending on what corner of the world that particular religion came from at what particular time. But at its heart is this idea of love, putting other people before you um, and, you know, different ways in which people can remain present, be that through the ritual of prayer or kind of just eating a thing and, you know, every week doing the same thing or, you know, lighting candles or whatever those little rituals can be. I think they all kind of speak to some level of simplicity that's helpful in our lives when we've got little rituals and routines. Um, But yeah, I believe that we're all the same creature and we're some kind of infant, infant, ball of light, godlike being thing that is essentially, this is going to sound crazy, but that is essentially living, we're all living together as different nerve endings of the same kind of creature, experiencing every aspect of what it is to love, hate, be teased, be the teaser, um, you know, punch people, be the person who got punched. Like every emotional uh, feeling that can be felt, we're experiencing as what feels like individuals, but that we're experiencing together and that we probably all will swap around. Like we're the same being. So we'll, we're all going to experience every single viewpoint that, that, that can be experienced, whether that's as a tree, as a fucking plant, as a person, whatever it might be in, in the, in the planet. Um, but what we are is essentially like an infant God whose dad told us to smoke the whole pack. Um, so that we were like, <laughs> I think we were like, I'm ready to create now. And I think our mother, father ball of light thing was like, all right, have a go at it. Um, like in the same way of like, they call you smoking and you're like, smoke the whole pack. And I think, and I think we're now kind of, we're gonna, whenever we wake up, whenever that might be, we're going to go, okay, maybe we're not ready to create. There's something more to learn. And then that will be how we progress as whatever being we are beyond. Oh, that's fucking a lot to take in. That's going to sound so trippy, but. No, it's a, I mean, it's, that's pretty much the standard answer most people give. Um, so. <laughs> I don't know. It's like, it's hectic, but that's where my head's at with it. It's like that, that no, everything, man, matters. Like it. everything you do it, matters because you're doing it to yourself and like everything that people do to you matters because that's you doing it to you and everything's mm-hmm. important. So no matter how much something hurts, it's something that you have to experience. No matter um, how wonderful something feels, that will be fleeting. It will come and go like, I don't know. Yeah, okay. So how are you at sitting in things that aren't going well then? Like, I mean, because that's the... I think all of us can enjoy being in the moment when things are going well. You're catching a good wave or you're experiencing a, you know, good moment in your life. Like, you know, 
Um, but when things are not going so well, when you have to sit in that, how are you at going, well, this is also part of, you know, this big blue shared consciousness, you know, me having go- going through this terrible time. So I'm not great at it, but I feel like I'm getting better at it. Um, so I can get pretty gnarly anxiety or um, uh, I can just get caught up in my head and um, get really distracted by fear. And that can be like, I can be rolling through the future repercussions of things that might happen as a result of choices I've made or past, you know, uh, get dwell in the past of like choices I've made and, you know, I could be further in this career if had I done that or I could have, you know, this was a good idea or I said something mean to that person or that, you know, that affected me in a different way. But, uh, and a big thing can be, I guess, at the moment, all the existential things going on in the world. So like as a father now, I've got a four and a six-year-old, um, I can often dwell on, you know, God, what's the climate going to be like when they're my age? What's the political system going to look like when they're my age? Um, what is the, you know, what are the conflicts in the world that could really affect them? And, you know, I can just ripple through these like future fears for them and then also you know past decisions i've made in my own life um and i guess trying to just focus on being able to be like ah like you can't do anything about any of it <laughs> like you know like and just find that spot and that's what surfing does help me do that surfing mm. surfing i've only started you know i've only been doing for a bit but the what i really find with it is it just totally clears my mind because you've got lots of little mini goals you're focusing on when you jump in the water you're like all right i got to get out the back you know and then that's mission one and then you get out the back and it's like i'm gonna sit my board a bit and catch my breath and uh wait for the right wave to come through and then find yourself in the right spot that you can catch that wave and then you know once you're there you're like okay focus on my pop-up all right i'm up on my feet now what have i got to do all right pay attention like that it's just it doesn't for me when i'm floating around the water i don't really have time to dwell on the past or worry about the future it just lets me enjoy a thing um while i'm doing it and i guess uh during lockdown which for me is kind of like interesting because i spent six months quarantined in 2009 2010 before uh, everyone was doing it um (laughs) and and i went through a whole thing there like um in terms of like a kind of headspace shift that helped me get through that um, without completely losing my marbles. And then, but you know, this is, this experience has been a totally different one where it's like, you've got the kids and you've got the family and um, there's also the kind of fear of the world being affected by it. And like what the, what that shift is going to look like. So yeah, I went through some pretty kind of tough, dark headspaces um, during this lockdown process and in, in kind of what's my own fault is I've I put all my kind of like mental health marbles in surfing um, over the last couple of years and then having a beach that's outside of the 5k radius meant I didn't have that all of a sudden and that was what I'd kind of like was constantly like at least I can just if I'm starting yeah. to feel mental I can just go for a surf and and that I didn't have that anymore so I've since bought three skateboards and have been like rolling around <laughs> trying to get what I get out of um, surfing with skating and all I'm doing is collecting bruises on my shins and I'm getting uh, putting my body in a terrible place for uh, for growing old but um yeah, <laughs> honey, I'm gonna chuck an ollie. Could you please squirt this hose in my face? This is as close as I can. Totally, get. totally. Uh, okay, so uh, I'm gonna ask you about advice. 
Um, are, are you a person who takes advice? And the question that I really want to ask is this. Um, what's either the best or worst piece of advice that you've ever got? Or both if you have, if one comes to mind. But I'm always interested in advice, whether you took the advice and whether it was good or bad. So I have a scenario that it kind of involves both, right? And this is uh, to do with my father. So um, at a certain point in my 20s, I was kind of going off the rails a little bit Um uh, just in terms of the way I was living, you know, partying from Wednesday to Monday and doing that every week. And my dad pulled me aside one day and he kind of brought me into a into the living room and he'd laid out all these photos of things like boats, cars, houses, um, you know, uh, pretty people, just all, all sorts of nice material things. And he's like, "Do you, son, do you ever want to have any of these nice things in your life? Because the way you're going about life right now, you're never going to have any of them. You know, you're throwing it all away. Um, that the where your life is headed is a dead end, effectively. And it was as a way to kind of try and shake me out of the the space that I was in. Right. Many years later, um, my father. So I lost him three years ago to cancer. Um, but towards the end of his cancer, Dad said to me, "I've been working my whole life to uh, to buy nice things and afford nice things." Uh, and at this point, he bought himself a secondhand Ferrari that he was doing up, and he had like a you know this kind of twin hull boat that he bought that he was fixing and doing up, and um, you know not the like sh- you know super expensive schmick things, but like versions of that that he was working on fixing up. Um, that, and he's like, I've been so focused on like working my whole life to try and save enough money to buy these nice things that I can then have this nice retirement, you know, driving my nice car and driving my nice boat and have this really nice life. And I, unfortunately, this fucking cancer's got me and I'm not going to ever get to that point. And all I've done is work my ass off for these things that I'm never going to get to enjoy. And that to me was like the such a rounded off lesson in terms of how my dad had changed as a person as a result of those two circumstances. So in the first, doing everything he could to bring his son back on the rails, you know, um, by using material life as a lure. And clearly that shows where his head was at at the time was that he found those things really important. Uh, And then getting to that scenario of like knowing that you're not going to live much longer and knowing that you, that those things don't come with you into the afterlife. Um, and knowing that they don't matter. <laughs> like, And I just really cl- cleanly learned that lesson through dad. And it's funny because having been in my own scenario of health, you know, I've mentioned a couple of times the TB thing back in 2009 where, you know, I was quite worried about death. The The thing that I also felt during that period was like, ah, it's, you, you're not like worried that you'd, you're not thinking about, oh God, I wish I worked harder or God, I wish I owned more things. Um, all you're thinking about is like, fuck, have I been the best friend I could have been? Have I been the best brother I could have been? Have I been the best son, you know, mother? What have I? That's all you care about is the actual personal relationships you've had and how you've impacted those people and how they've impacted you and whether or not you could have been a better person. But um, yeah. Good answer. You've, you've raised the bar for other people answering that question. It's one of my favorite questions. It's a great question. And I'm not sure that I, I'm not sure that I always get the answer I'm looking for. And you, got, you today gave me very much the sort of answer that I'm looking for when I ask that question. So thank you, mate. Um, two more questions and we're done. Easy. So on my desk here, um, I have a piece of heavy metal of some sort. of. It's got a, an inscription on it. It's as close as I get to a motivational saying. 
Um, people who listen to the podcast every week, uh, I'm sure are bored of hearing me explain this, but I explain it every week anyway, which is this. Uh, it says, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? Now, the way that I interpret that is, it's mostly for my work, to be honest, like the way that I look at it. And often when I'm trying to put together a new project or a show or something, I imagine that it's already successful. And then I go, if it was guaranteed that it could be successful, what would I just love to do? And I always try to then use that as the starting point of what my project is, regardless of whether it'll be successful or not. That's just what it means to me. But it can mean anything to you. You can interpret it in whatever way you want. But I will ask you, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? It's a beautiful question. Um I've got, I've got like 45 answers swimming around in my head for different areas of life <laughs> um, because yeah. I think it applies differently to love, family, parenting, uh, career. But I guess what I will go with now is surf pipeline. Um, because, oh, yeah, right. Nice. Uh, I just think I'm in a stage of my surfing where I'm still like quite scared by the size of waves and I'm still kind of like tackling just the... the uh, trusting myself like that I can do it when I go to get up and sometimes I, I, the waves that I have a great time on are when I just don't overthink it too hard or I just kind of I just lean into it and go all right we're on it now let's go and that's when I have a great time but I would love to like and I don't ever see myself doing this in real life ever but I would love to like surf chopu or pipeline or one of those hectic crazy giant breaks and to it would just be such a rush and a thrill and um to do that if I knew I couldn't fail would it would probably be the only time I would ever actually do that because <laughs> I'm I'm that's, way too conscious. You know what? That's a, yeah. such a good answer. Good. It's such a good moment, right? Because sometimes the failure is part of the thrill of something. But I think in that case, like no, taking away the take failure. Take away the spinal the damage. Just be able like, to I'm way that. too aware yeah, of the fact like, that I could I end can up enjoy this. as a full quad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, final question mate I have a time machine I can take you to any point in the future or any point in the past that is a round trip um, you do not have to do something on behalf of the world that is my only rule like you don't have to go back and warn people about climate change or kill baby Hitler or any of those sort of things I'd, I'd, I'd like you to use this trip purely for whatever you're curious about you can go and change something or watch something or completely ignore your own life and just go and visit some period of time be it in the past or the future I don't mind but where would you like to go I reckon I'd just go forward to see my kids all grown up and just to get to hang out with them and just chat to them in a, in a, in a place where I'm just another like, you know, I'm just another 39-year-old or whatever and I get to chat to them when they're 35 or, you know, 30. So would you go – I'm interested in this now. Good, I mean, quite a common answer for people who have kids is the idea they want to see their kids as adults. I think that's cool. Like that seems like a lovely thing. Um, would you go to a point where you would still – like, say we don't know if you're alive or not, right? Like, you know, at this point, right? Like, would you go, say, if you went 30 years in the future, you know, they're four and six or whatever now, you meet them as, like, in their mid-30s, there's a chance you're still hopefully rolling around at that stage as well. Or would you go to a point where you think, oh, I probably won't be there anymore? In my fantasy of this you-can-go-anywhere thing, I just kind of meet them yep. as people in a bar and I just – I'm not their yeah. dad. I'm just a person they meet and I just yep. get to – Talk to them like you're talking to me now. Like I get to understand them and know the people that they grew up to be. 
and what they think about things and what their philosophies are and what, you know, what's important to them. Um, yeah, in this, I'm kind of like, I'm not me. I'm a bystander that's... No, I like this. Yeah. This is good. I'm happy with that. That's absolutely a good answer. But would you directly ask them whether they had a good relationship with their dad or not? No. Nah. Or would you just... <laughs> you wouldn't bring that up? I'd, look, I know that they would. I'd, I know that I just wouldn't want to know if I was alive or dead. And, and there'd be there'd be a risk if I asked them, do you get along with dad? But they go, oh, we did, yeah, but he fucking died yeah, when we were yeah, nine. Yeah, he died, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I'm like, oh, Skateboarding God. accident. Yeah, yeah. He broke his neck at Bondi. And just be like, oh, no, North Bondi, like surfing some two-foot wave, shattered his spine. Uh, yeah, or some, yeah, just I mean, went for a skate out the front. There'd be a lot of bad taste Bondi hipster style pun like headlines in the paper if you died in some sort of skateboarding accident at Bondi, by the way. Totally. Well deserved. <laughs> well, I'm not going to let you let me let go of me, though, because you told me before that you're going to ask me one question, and that's what would your philosophy be if you had a life philosophy? So, well, we've spoken a lot about philosophies, but I haven't asked you directly what your life philosophy is, so it can be a good last question. Because I have a good so, one. I have a good, simple okay, one. Okay, good. What is it? No finish lines. So nothing in life, never set your expectation that a pain will end or that a, a, a hard time will have a finish line to it. Um, because if you don't have an expectation of something ending, then you've got nothing to kind of look forward to. Um, and I think it, it, this applies very strongly to like what we've been going through, through lockdown and all that stuff. If you, if they say, oh, lockdown will be finished in two weeks and you put all your expectation that you'll be out of here in two weeks, when that two weeks becomes four weeks, six weeks, nine weeks, it's just so much harder on you emotionally. Um, if, if you're fighting with your partner and, you know, and you don't have that, you, you can't be able to go, oh, well, this will be over soon and I'll just let it blow over, then that causes you to actually try and correct those things and it makes you work um for it a little more but yeah so generally my 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 philosophy is no finish lines and the reason i have that philosophy is when i went to hospital in 2009 i was told i'd be in there for 21 days and i ended up spending six months there and i just halfway through that thing i just got to a point where i just said to the doctor stop telling me when you think i'll be out of here because i just can't handle it anymore and so i just like every day i was just like get on the exercise bike do some yoga do some training watch some telly do some this make a silly rap video whatever but i was just like this is my life for it could be 30 years like this is how i live now and then that means that the that if if you expect something to last forever and there's no finish line then that means that it only ever feels good when you do reach a finish line well, that is a beautiful note to ironically end this podcast yeah. on. So exactly what you've been looking the, forward to, the finish line. We've got to the finish line. Yeah. So, mate, thank you for this. It was a great pleasure. I um, wish you all the best of luck with the documentary. I highly recommend that people watch it and, of course, check out all your other stuff. That um, Is there a central hub? for your projects like if people want if people aren't familiar with like bondi hipsters or the stuff you did when you're in hospital or uh, is it all kind of found in different places or is there like some sort of central hub where you can like find links to everything that you do yeah i mean we've got a youtube channel um the youtube channel is called van Vuren brothers and most of the videos are on there from from the past but um yeah, I mean, otherwise, happy for people to just watch the doco and work backwards from there. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't right. want to send them. To, I don't want to send them to forty-five different links around the internet. I'm like, you know what? Yeah, this is that's out next week. Start Let's with just the start doco. There. Start with start the doco. There. We'll concentrate on that for now. Yeah. Thank you very much, mate. Cheers, Will. <laughs>